Atlanta. Hello. Hello. Uh, the listeners don't understand this, but I'm speaking to you from inside a well. Yeah, it's uh, we uh, he was playing near a well and he fell in. Uh, that's mm. fine. It's mystic in there, so you know. Yeah, I mean, I am in New England now, where everything is spooky and racist. So that's right. Yeah, um, I actually I wanted to give you like a kind of series of questions, sort of like a void kampf test, but you don't have to look at it like that. It's not like I'm gonna show up and shoot you if you fail it. <laughs> Ha 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 ha! Indeed. So, what are your thoughts on the metal band Angra? Uh, you know, uh, they shred wicked hard. Uh, they got mm. they got at least three records that I think you know fuck crazy heavy. Yeah, good good answer. You you pass so far. Um, would you be opposed to me pouring a second glass of whiskey? Uh, no. That's the, that's the second question, to be clear. And then the third one, is there anything as a communist that would make you oppose me pouring myself a second glass of whiskey? Now I'm frightened because I don't immediately have an answer. If anything, I would think that that would encourage me to do it because whiskey is the uh, the alcohol of the working class. But uh, yeah. now, I'm, now I'm concerned. Okay. So last question. This one's a doozy. Do you remember where you were on September 11th? I do. I do actually. As corny as it is, I do. <laughs> well, where were you? I was in the Scope classroom, which is the special, um, like gifted education program in the seventh mm -hmm. grade, uh, which was inside of one of the art rooms. It was technically inside an art closet uh, that had been repurposed into a very small classroom, uh, and we were told very shortly after it happened. I was um, playing Dungeons and Dragons and uh, we were like in the living room, you know, big table. And then a friend of mine, he'd stepped out and to step out of the house I was living in back then, you went through the room where the TV was and like the news was playing or something. And he came back and he said, you all have to come see this. And that was the first hour, right? So we kind of stayed there until my mom came back from work and was like, turn that off. And as we were arguing with her, the second plane hit. Uh, and she was like, that's it. And she kind of like unplugged the TV. Um, and that, this was in Israel, right? And, and by the way, I, I had no idea back then that that event would actually affect me, right? Because we ended up um, taking the gas masks out, right? Saddam, yeah. supposedly chemical weapons, all that bullshit. Um, so I, I didn't know that at the time, but that would actually you know, affect me um, directly. So the reason I'm asking is that, well, this week was 9-11, right? And I wanted kind of like to, you know, give it the old death sentence treatment. Um, because I think, and to be clear, I don't want to talk about like Bush did 9-11, yes or no, or, you know, how it changed the world or whatever. Like you, you have other podcasts where you can do that. I want to talk about how, as pose the question, which will tie into the book that we want to talk about this time around. Is it the greatest, most famous, most psychologically impacting disappearance act in the history of mankind? That is a great question. Up until you got to the phrase disappearance act, I had a firm answer and, uh, 
now I don't. I'm assuming you're speaking metaphorically here on account of the disappearing of the towers was not particularly skillfully done. Um, yeah, no, of course, I, but 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 also but also not. I, I was watching, you know. Even I sometimes I scroll Facebook and I get those videos, the reels or whatever, and I saw one of Penn from Penn and Teller, mm -hmm. and he was on this talk show. Or is it Teller? Who's the one with the like the the long hair? Uh, that's Penn. Okay. And he was doing this show with a bunch of celebs and he was doing his whole thing where, you know, the volunteer doesn't see the magic trick, but the audience does. Therefore, you know, showing them that magic is all about um, illusion and, and ledger domain, as they used to say. Um, and I was thinking about how, like, the reason the magic works, and this is dumb, this is like everybody knows that, is because of the extravagance, right? It's because of the stuff you see the hand movements, the colors, and so on, which in a way, 9-11 did have, like any good disappearance act, right? It had fire yep. and blood and awful human terror and pain and so on. And where I just heard that, um, what was it? The number of first responders has now exceeded, or who have died, has now exceeded the number of people who died in the towers. Yep. Um, that happened uh, a couple of years ago, actually, I think. Hmm, interesting. I think like the city of New York like officially recognized a bunch of more people, um, and that crossed the limit. Whatever, it doesn't matter. The the point yeah. is, the act itself like, sure, it draws your attention, and as you said, it wasn't very skillful, right? There was no like um, subterfuge, but then on the other hand, there was right because with this massive occurrence, you got a million things that you never saw coming sneaking up on you, just like the card you chose out of the deck, right? Or the coin behind your ear. And I'm, you know, that's the obvious stuff again, which I don't want to talk about, like fascism and, you know, the, the conflagration of American patriotism, stuff like that. But you also got like cultural impacts that none of us could have foreseen or that we, and that we don't yet understand fully, right? And economical stuff and, and a bunch of things. So, so you see what I'm saying? Like, the yes, you're right. There was like the flamboyant act itself, but... There was all this other stuff, almost like on a carrier wave, you know, that came with it. Yeah. So I think the only other, when I was thinking about this in the shower, of course, uh, earlier this week, I was thinking that there is one disappearance act that I would uh, put alongside 9-11. Do you know what it is? Uh, no. Jesus Christ, rising from the tomb. Oh, I, I can see this. <laughs> right? This seems very right. obvious in retrospect. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think it's interesting because, you know, immediately it conjures to mind Bo both both events, by the way, conjure um, hauntology, right? And hauntings in general. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think Mark Fisher ever wrote about 9-11 directly. Or there's no essay dedicated to 9-11. I don't think he did, or at least I do not recall one at all. Yeah, but I'm sure he mentioned it. I could Google it later. The point is, like, with both of those acts, I mean, two very different kinds of disappearances, right? But with both of those acts, the point is less um, what has disappeared, right? No one laments, like, the physical space of the World Trade Centers. Yeah. Uh, Except this, weirdos, this might... but that's, that's, like, we don't get yeah. them. Exactly. And, like, maybe... I'm not American, so I don't. There's no four pause here for me. I can say whatever I want. Like, 
if you went to like July 2001 and you asked New Yorkers what they think about the World Trade Center, they would start swelling up and down. And everybody hated hated it. Uh, it was out of date. It was um, kitschy and, and trashy in, in all the wrong ways, right? Yeah. And at worst, it also represented, you know, the, the ivory tower, the elites, you know, disconnected from the city and um, and so on. So, so no one misses like the building, right? And, and you know, there's only a small number of people on this planet that miss the people who were in the towers because most of us didn't know them, right? Like there are whole generations, uh, well, not generations, a generation that was born that couldn't have possibly have known them because they weren't alive when they died, right? Um, so we don't miss the, the articles that disappeared. We miss um, what they symbolize, right? This world order, the the, the sort of um, hope, the millennial, so not not millennial, um, the generation millennial is in the millennium, right? Sort of hope for a different future and so on. And with Jesus Christ, it's not that when he resurrects, it's not about Jesus himself being alive, right? That's that's not the point. The point is the promise of resurrection. It's not that his disciples are happy that he himself is alive again, but that if he could be resurrected, then anybody could be resurrected. Right? So, so in both cases, it's not a particular article that disappears which elicits the response. Right? It's what that article comes to symbolize. I'm trying to figure out what this has to do with Angra. Did someone in Angra do 9-11? So, no. <laughs> Kiko well, Lorea, where were you? <laughs> I mean, I, I've listened to enough, like, blowback and turn on or whatever to know that you can't ever rule out anyone from doing 9-11, right? Like, That's uh, right. It could have been anyone. Um, what, I was in the seventh does... grade, but who knows what I was up to. You're one of my top suspects. Yeah, I was out there doing 9-11 is what I was doing, but you didn't hear that from me. <laughs> <laughs> from the from the art closet um so it, it does have something to do with angra because again i was thinking about like how i want to intro this this um, episode and I, I wanted to say something about i don't know power metal i've been listening to angra and a bunch of like more contemporary bands in the space you know there's like f maybe three or four albums released each year in power metal that are worth your time um this year it's like a crimson dawn um they're from Italy because, of course, they are. Mm -hmm. um, Do they sound really like good Rhapsody? Album. They no, it's it's Damn. your like um, traditional doom metal kind of power metal. If you, no. if you catch my drift, oh, like the yeah, yeah. Atlantean Codex kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Uh, but mo more European, more European, mm. uh, <laughs> more, more Italian. Um, <laughs> and, and there were a bunch of other albums this year, but like two or three, right? Because yeah. this is this is the thing. Jano's gone. Jano's gone. And like people don't understand what that means because everybody likes to make fun of power metal. And to be fair, like, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a ridiculous. Yeah, we, you, I've heard it. I get, I get where the humor comes from. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it used to be big. Like people don't really remember that power metal used to be big. Like power metal was metal's glam. I mean, glam was metal's glam, right? But power metal was 
was kind of like it was a, it was a thing it was a big thing yeah, like if especially you look at... if like for, for me as an american i never really got to understand well i got to understand a little bit how big it was because it's one of the few things that like if you were a kid um getting into heavy metal that you could find pretty easily in almost any store which is weird to think about now and would grab you um but this is extra strange thinking about as I've gotten older and I've learned about like European, basically any non-American listening where power metal was like was big. Like, as you mentioned, like you, they were playing big fucking venues. Um, yeah. Regular people in, in Europe and in South America and Central America and uh, like the Mediterranean, all like regular fucking people would be power metal fans and would have like a power metal t-shirt. Yeah, which is and, not a and, thing that happened in America. Yeah, for sure. And um, I think, you know, me coming from the Mediterranean, you know, kind of colors my perception here because power metal was also and is still quite big in, in Israel. But like some of the biggest bands in metal history are power metal bands. Like Blind Guardian is on yeah. the level of Metallica and Iron Maiden. You don't get a band like that without a lot of dreck. Right? but a lot of Drek, like volume. There, there were so many power metal bands that existed so that Blind Guardian could be Blind Guardian. one of the most successful bands. Yeah, Blind Guardian. And then mm -hmm. that's, not, that's also not the only huge name, like Halloween and Sonata Arctica and Nevermore and Gamma Ray and all these bands. These are big bands, right? Um, Stratovarius, like these are big names. These are not like niche um, bands, but if you look at the state of the genre today, there are two types. Well, of course, there are a million types, right? But two main types, right? One is the old guard still around, right? Like Camelot, Symphony X, uh, Blind Guardian, all these guys, Falconer, Elven King, all these bands, like classic bands, are still around. And then Royal you have. Royal Hunt still kicking around? Damn. I haven't thought of that band in ages. I have no right? idea. Yeah. Oh, and of course, Nightwish. We we didn't um, we didn't mention Nightwish, which is also a huge band. We also have that whole but, term that like Amorphous had, where they are basically yeah. a power metal band now. Yeah, but if you, I mean, I haven't done the numeric research because I'm not a nerd. Um, <laughs> but if you like looked at at new bands, I bet you would only find not only but primarily you'd find throwbacks. Right? You'd find like tributes. You'd find bands who sound like the old bands. But there is very little innovation being done. Now, there is innovation being done, right? And that's stuff that I've highlighted on the blog um, over the last few years. Bands like Lore, um, fantastic band. Um, bands like, damn, what are they called? Fuck me. Of course, the name just like, pew. Um, I'm trying to find like the album based on like a like a track name. Damn, I'll remember. There's there's a few more bands who are doing interesting things in power battle, but but I can count them on like. Well, obviously I can't count them because I just forgot their names. But um, I can count them on on one hand, right? Um, so, a disappearance act, like one of metal's biggest subgenres, absolute stadium burster of a genre, just disappears. Right, and and it leaves behind it echoes of what it was. Speaking of being in a well, 
Um, and and nothing else. So now I'm I'm asking you this question: What does what do you think the disappearance of power metal um, symbolizes? Like the other disappearance acts, what kind of trends or shifts does it um, maybe hint that all, that metal has undergone in the last like two or three decades? I mean, we have a shift definitely in terms of the like constituent um listenership and from there the uh i've been hanging around a bunch of lacanians recently which i've mixed feelings about as you can imagine but bad idea yeah but to, but to borrow a little bit of their language which isn't like totally off base i don't think um the sort of fantastical substrate that drives a lot of heavy metal because of that has has changed shape quite dramatically it's actually kind of funny to me how like Mastodon bringing back um, one of the big things that people like us tend to really love Mastodon for is bringing back um, progressive music to sort of like a front and center position uh, that it hadn't really been in for a while outside of, again, certain places uh, like within Europe. But one of the major things, though, was how they reached a lot of the sort of punk and hardcore crowd and opened up the doors of heavy metal to them um, anything from black metal to death metal to uh traditional heavy metal and that's that influx over the past like two decades has like very radically changed um sort of the the vector that heavy metal was going in much to the chagrin of a lot of certain types of very tedious hashers that we know who unfortunately like a lot of really dope records but are like incredibly tedious as people um that sort of whine that like how can we don't have more incantation clones or whatever um yeah but yeah the sort of uh i mostly i mean i, I follow a whole bunch of stuff as uh both listeners know and you know because that's how we met is both following heavy metal and then finding out that we had all these other similarities but especially in the world <laughs> of death metal the um the atmosphere uh actually to be fair the atmosphere post-covid has been radically different but the sort of like five or ten year window prior to it was very very different from how death metal felt up to like 2008 or 2009 there was a certain kind of um uh polished grime for lack of a better term that like especially uh immolation around that time period was sort of the peak of what death metal was doing in my head in a lot of ways uh that all of a sudden like totally went out the window we got back to like the 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 grime and roughness and dirt of what felt like like very early 90s or uh late 80s uh death metal yeah just the whole mm -hmm. it's hard for me not to think in terms of those more like psychic conceits the fantastical substrate of like the mythic image of heavy metal shifted yeah. and so something like power metal became far less desirous to a lot of people like even it, the fantastical didn't go away but it got rendered a lot more often like the people who i imagine would have gone to make power metal bands were instead making trad metal bands they were making um doom metal bands which had a really big like mythic and epic doom resurgence around that time not compared so, uh, to the heights of power metal big for the underground yeah, of course. world i should say um yeah so so i love the fact that you mentioned um desire at the end though because I think a lot of it goes back to what I talked to David Burke about, right? When I was interviewing him about his writing on um, desire and, and metal and what we ended up calling metallic excess. Like yeah. 
power metal is one of the most quintessential metal subgenres. Right? Like at its core is an extravagance and an extremity that is metal. Right? At the base of every other subgenre of metal, because everything stems from heavy, right? And power is very close to heavy. Um, there is that kind of exuberance, this kind of like emotional overflow. I mean, there, there's you can make this tie pretty clear that like for other genres, you kind of have to reach a little bit to get to the like the Thin Lizzy, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden kind of core of what they're doing. Yeah, and it's there for pretty much every genre. Um, yeah, except except doom metal, which had its own parallel evolution in the '70s, but that that's its own that that's its own little can of worms there. But for for power metal, you don't have to reach at all. If anything, you have to tell a new listener of heavy metal, like when you show them Judas Priest, that they're like, oh, this reminds me of power metal. And you go, no, power metal reminds you of this. Yeah. Um, but you have to do that because the tie is so immediate. Like it. So I, I agree 100%. So now the question is, what changed? And like you just flipped the question on its head, I'm flipping that question and saying, what does the disappearance of power metal tell us about what changed about metal and i think the answer to that is not far from 9-11 or rather the years that followed it well the counter reaction to the patriotic saccharine violence of american culture right where everything was inundated by this overflowing and extremely cringeworthy passion think about you know kids being forced to take the pledge of allegiance and massive stadium uh, filling tools of like people singing the anthem and and shit like that and flags everywhere that very much birthed the ironic era right it birthed yeah. the, the detachment and so on power metal cannot be ironic you cannot do ironic power metal it just it doesn't work by definition the genre is a bunch of fucking nerds, right? Like loving fantasy, loving metal. And yeah, like Sirith um, <clears throat> uh, Ungol will write a song about Elric and the Black Sword in 2021, right? Like they will sing passionately about uh, Fritz Leiber and, and, and D&D-esque fantasy because they just love that shit. They don't do it because it's uh, ironic and detached and cool or they don't they won't even do it because it's post-ironic right like this kind of like detachment of detachment that is the current era that we're in they're just earnest because that's what the subgenre is about and i think of course there were some embers as we said there were like torchbearers and people i mixed my metaphors there right but like uh, uh yeah. people who kept the flame of power metal alive in the underground but to a large extent when irony became the order of the day and power metal performed its own kind of inadvertent disappearance act and um and, and left so that of course there are holdovers and there are bands again doing interesting things now by the way i, I remember uh, that band's name fellowship right who released the fantastic Saberlight chronicles um so um there are still bands doing interesting things and 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 pushing power metal forward or just still keeping the flame alive but by and large like you you just said i'm tying it back to you like the the materium right the the fantastical kind of like dictionary or tapestry that we're working with right now doesn't work it doesn't allow for power metal right it, it doesn't have a good place to um 
plug into, which I think is uh, quite interesting and, and maybe just another example of the like baited switch of of 9-11 I mean, um, and it, what it, happened. It winds up also having this very strange tie, I think. And to be fair, I think that uh, both of these things, both power metal and the thing I'm about to say, emerge from the um, post-sincere vacuum of... Uh, of 9-11 and the reaction against 9-11. But I think they also then form a feedback loop with each other. Something that we've been talking about a lot um, directly and indirectly here has been sort of the shape of fantastical literature after 9-11. Like there were, uh, there was obviously like a crazy boom period from like the mid seventies to uh, like the early nineties. It was like an insane boom period. Um, and I'm, I'm saying that not to write out, the progress and quality of like fantasy writing in in the 90s at that point but like that's the window where you get like shannara and we really didn't the closest thing we got to something as big as shannara or the dragonlance novels is something like the drizzt books um yeah. someone probably at home will want to say a song of ice and fire and that one i think for anyone who is there as they were being published has sort of two answers. One is that George R. R. Martin had been a respected name prior to those books, A Song of Ice and Fire coming out, but that they were always kind of like, they were like a hip choice for a bit. And it wasn't really until the show that they had this like massive moment. Uh, they were known in the fantasy world, obviously. They weren't like totally underground, but they weren't the kind of thing where like, if, if someone said they liked fantasy, they had the Dragonlance books. They did. Uh, they knew who Raistlin was. Um, yeah. They did not necessarily know who Jon Snow was. Uh, but that likewise, after 9-11, we had this... It's taken a while for fantasy to kind of relearn itself. Um, we talk a lot about that here, in fact, because it still hasn't recentered in in any specific way like we tend to focus on the weirder crustier um like punkier more horror inflected or surrealist fringes of fantasy because those like really thrill us a lot uh here but obviously there's been the whole ya fantastical thing there's been the post um once fan fiction got a certain level of embrace the sort of children of fan fiction that are original works, but still feel like largely indebted to that space. That's its own vector. Um, and saying this without attacking any of them, I can, but this is, that's not my point. <laughs> my point is more that there used to be at least a, like there was a center and then provinces. Like you could have provincial fantasy in the 80s or 90s because there was a central image of what is the fantastical we even see this with um ironically with like tabletop gaming where like yeah D &D i was, I was is, gonna bring up uh yeah D, D is still obviously like financially speaking no one's ever gonna dethrone it i can't imagine what would that would require and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that part of it is a consistency of quality of the product and part of it is also uh wizards of the coast are like fucking psychotic cutthroats um like it's a bad company whole you know that that's a whole messy thing for any anyone who knows inside baseball about it that's a that's a whole fucking saga um yeah but within even that space it used to be that like everyone knew D, &D. like especially the era of ad and d um 
a little bit during the 3.0 and 3.5 era, a little bit, but in in the 80s to 90s where there was second edition, everyone played second edition. You likely played additional things. You likely also played, you know, your World of Darkness games, you know, your your basic role playing, so your Call of Cthulhu or your Pendragon type games, your Rune Quest. Um, there's that one that has Elf in the name, and I don't remember its title. If you're European, <laughs> you played Dragonbane. But everyone played D&D. Everyone. Like, if yeah. you were in a metal space, you knew it. Um, and that's not really the case anymore. Uh, so it's like, even this level of centralization of, like, where do we draw our fantastical imagery and the spirit of fantasy? We even get this within any specific... Um, role-playing game thinking i thinking in gaming terms again that we have a success of this is i promise this is not me attacking Morkborg, um but Morkborg <laughs> is very barely a game for people who've played it and no like this is not hate on the guy who made it who did just he just came up with like i want to see this tone and i'm going to throw out something the second it begins to work just to seed the ground so yeah. no hate to him, but it largely has succeeded just because people are hungry for that tone. The fact that the game is pretty flimsy doesn't matter but, as much as like there is a substrate to grab. But but, but also but also and, and I spoke about this with David again that I I nearly um, submitted my application for like a PhD on this um, at, at Bristol University. Like what is metal and like Morkborg is so fucking metal because yes. it is earnest. It's ex the, the exact same thing. It wells all of its influences, all of its vibes, all of its aesthetics, not on the sleeve. It takes that sleeve and pushes it into your fucking eyes, whether you like it or not. I mean, right? there's like, a thing about the, the, the tribalism of the heavy metal fan wearing, it's a black t-shirt. It's always black. It has a big yeah. garish logo and some ridiculous art that will get you sneered at in public space. You're wearing your leather jacket, even though it's like June. Um, and you, you do this in part because you then see someone out in public in the same kind of like, again, tribal dress. And uh, you look at them and you go, oh shit, you're one of, my, you're one of mine. Um, and it requires a level of, a level of earnestness, even in the post-ironic gesture. The post-ironic thing only works because at root, you are earnest and you now need to find a way to distance yourself from the earnestness so you don't blah blah, blah all that kind of tedious bullshit and we can get into Derrida yeah. if you want to talk about that but there the trace the trace so, has to be there yeah otherwise you're like I you're agree. a poser like that that's the whole notion of the poser is at certain yeah. point we do care about like are you legit like the earnestness must be present in heavy metal. It can't. It can't be like turtles all the way down, right? Like at some yeah. point, there has to be like a substrate of actual love for something. Okay. Thank you for participating in my void conf test. You passed with flying colors. Um, you are not that, an android, I think. That's insane because I'm an android, but I didn't say that. Yeah. And also, you did 911. That's um, right. Cool. So now let's do music. Um, and we're going to do very earnest music, of course, even if it's not like the most metal thing that I could have chosen. But it's one of the albums that in the last like two months, I have not been able to stop listening to it. Um, and that is Mohini Day's self-titled album. Oh, fuck yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, my God. So, so 
So Mohini Day um, is she's from India and she is hmm, a phenomenally talented bass player. Like, I don't know how much you imagine her to be talented when I say that more than that. Okay. Um, she, she started playing with Steve Vai when she was like 20 yeah. or 21. Like, yeah. and he talked about her the way that Frank Zappa talked about Steve Vai when he yeah. was that young. 100%. And this self-titled album is like, so what if Steve Vai's tour bus crashed into a Michael Manring show? If you don't know who Michael Manring is, by the way, then you're f- fucking oh up. Oh my and you god, have... I love him. Those attention yeah. deficit records. Oh yeah. my god. Also, and all also the soliloquy stuff. Oh my god. Yeah, no, he's... Yeah. Also, listen to Soliloquy, a fantastic release. Anyway, um, so they crash into a Michael Manling show, but then Watchtower is also playing, like the <laughs> progressive, technical, thrash metal um, band. Like, it's impossible to describe... Um, this album, by the way, it has like guest spots from Mahavishnu Orchestra, Simon Phillips, that is Toto's drummer, drums on this. Um, if, if, if you're if you're a fusion fan, Simon Phillips is like yeah, th- that's big fucking news. Also, he played on he played on Sin After Sin. Yep, yep. So and and then we also have um, Marco Miniman, who shouldn't be a stranger oh. to anybody listening to this. Um, I love you, Marco fantastic absolutely fantastic drummer and then th- those are just the drummers right because guitarists we have uh, Guthrie Govan who played for <laughs> Hans Zimmer and the aristocrats Ron motherfucking Bumblefoot is on this um, I mean I don't need to introduce him right I, I hope I don't need to introduce him and then like million more super talented people and of course in the center Day herself who just my god like her approach to rhythm and composition is so 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 good. It um, reminds me of if we had gotten a third Gordian Knot record, which, for those in the know, that's one. It's massive praise, and two, I yeah. cannot. I Eden and I have talked privately, um, and there's a whole yeah. certain world of people who rhapsodize about those two Gordian Knot records, and also Cortland, the um, debut solo record from Sean Malone. Anything yeah. that reminds me of his spirit within the world, this world of like metallic yeah. progressive fusion stuff, major cosine. Yeah, I was also you know thinking about him because he would 100% have been on this album if he oh, were God, alive. Yes. Um, so I'm gonna play First Food, Then You, which is probably one of the heavier tracks on this album, and I strongly urge you to listen to the full thing this has bumblefoot on it by the way and malcolm miniman on drums so it's not a big surprise that it's heavy um and of course mohini day herself on the bass she also composed and produced um, this track and much of the rest of the album seriously like go listen to this it's just a phenomenal album and in the meantime this is first food then you Oh, 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 oh,
Okay. So speaking of things which aren't metal but are totally metal, this episode is the second episode in our series on Michael Moorcock. If you have not been following, we posted, it's been a month already or even more, two months, um, the first episode, uh, a, a triple, a forbidden triple episode um, with me, Langdon and Gareth on Elric of Melnibone, where we discussed various things like, is Elric a vampire or not? Of course, of course he's a vampire. Um, and other sundry things like Morcock's influence and things that are so bad that they become good, which is the story of metal, right? That's um, right. And, and we promised that we would do two things. We would do an, an extra episode, which is this one, on one more novel from the cycle. And then it, I would do a solo episode where I kind of gave people uh, a reading guide um, of like we're how to battling, get into... We're all battling the urge right now to make even more Moorcock episodes. We, we occasionally... <laughs> we, if you wind up seeing more, and this is more than a, a, a three-part yeah. series, it's because we failed. <laughs> yeah. This, this is the minimum. This is the minimum amount of Moorcock that we're going to be covering. Um, so I'm going to do like a third episode, which will help you get into the Eternal Champion yourself, should you so desire. But of course, we are death sentence. So when we, we could have chosen, you know, um, Ericose or Hawkmoon or Corb Silverhand, you know, one of those like staples of the Eternal Champion cycle. But that's not really our thing. So we chose one of the weirder um, novels or series of novellas that we could have chosen, which is the dancers at the end of time. Um, so the core of the dancers at the end of time comes in the form of um, three novellas, I guess you would call them, uh, published in the 70s, to be exact, 72, 74, and 76, which is obviously not a coincidence. The first one is called An Alien Heat. The second one is called The Hollowlands. And the last one is called The End of All Songs. And together they represent, the reason I chose these is, first of all, because they're some of my favorite, but also because they display Moorcock at his most free and bizarre and also funny. And they're a good counterpoint to Elric's kind of like dour seriousness and really showcases the other end of where the Eternal Champion can go to. Because essentially... These books are comedies, but, but don't think about like, you know, jokes. Think about comedies in the Greek sense, right? Yeah, it's like a, um, Greek, a Grecian or Shakespearean sense. Exactly. And they are also um, fin de siècle novels. So pardon my French pronunciation, pronunciation. Fin de siècle, obviously, the end of the century and specifically the 19th century, right? Which comes with all the... the millenarian decadence and the old world dying and virtue and 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 so on that you would associate with um you know that kind of like uh vibe so this is a genre right like um turn of the century is sometimes how it's translated into into english um and not um by coincidence it's also one of the flashpoints for fantasy and fiction, right? Many of the earliest works of uh, fantasy and fiction, like the works of H.G. Wells and Jules Verne, 
and um, others and more racist ones um, <laughs> were created within the atmosphere of the fin de siècle, the, the turn of the century. Um, you know, the, the best example is the time machine, right? And of course, A.G. Wells appears in Michael Moorcock's novellas in, in the second one as a character. Um, but if you think about like what the time machine is trying to tell you, the, um, the Murlocs and the Eloy and all that stuff, it's very much like a Victorian sort of metaphor about decadence and the fall of society and, and so on and so forth. So Moorcock is, is playing with all of these genres, to be clear. He's not like doing it with a straight face, right? Um, he's kind of uh, drawing a lot of influences from them and he uses them to say interesting things like Moorcock always does about, um, uh, about society and specifically anarchy and Nietzschean anarchy, uh, like the eternal return plays a role in, in, this, in these novels, uh, f uh, radical freedom, and so on. Okay, so that's kind of like the theoretical underpinnings. Let's get the plot out of the way real quick. Um, the books take place at the end of time, right? So it's not turn of the century, it's turn of the everything, turn of the universe. Well, humanity, or what's left of humanity, but very few persons, they're not really people, have infinite power, right? They have infinite levels of energy and they can, at a whim, destroy and create whatever their mind imagines. And they've been basically living this way for uncounted thousands of years. Um, and all they have left is amusement, right? They are completely decadent. They have no social uh, morals. They have no sexual limitations. There's incest. There's, I mean, calling it homosexuality would be wrong because there's no longer this kind of like limitation of the binary and genders and so on because you could literally wave your fingers and become a different gender or create a new gender or, or do whatever you want. And basically, the only thing that they think about is the novel, right? the new, the excitement of um, the fresh. Um, into the setting, we encounter Cherik Cornelian, who may or may not be the eternal champion, probably is, Right, Jerry Cornelius, one of the iterations of the champion, Jerick Cornelian, not very subtle. Uh, Moorcock was not subtle in any way. Um, he is the protagonist, and he has come up with a fantastic idea. He will do virtue. <laughs> um, his thing is that he's dedicated to the 19th century and kind of like chronicling that uh, period of time, and he stumbled across this fascinating notion of virtue, which, as best as he can understand, means not doing what you desire and he will introduce the virtue to the um, end of time um, not only that but once a certain time traveler arrives at the end of time um, mrs amelia underwood the most victorian name you could uh, think about he will gloriously freshly experimentally fall in love with her there is no love of course anymore there's only like dalliance and, and pleasure and he will fall in love with her the kind of like victorian virtuous love and that will be his contribution to the end of time and what follows from there is a series of funny and unfortunate and amusing events he travels back and forwards in time like back to the 19th century but also to the devonian period and forwards to the end of the universe and even beyond he gets into trouble with the law and the british empire and a bunch of other stuff um and that's that's basically it. So, Langdon, what what did you think of an Alien Heat or, or any other novels? Like, how how do they 
find you? I so I found this uh that that is a great question um <laughs> uh so one i can see why you said in our first episode premise for for those of you who haven't listened to all of them we started doing this because both gareth and i mentioned to uh to Eden that we've never read any more cock for for gareth this is less of a well gareth has read the jerry cornelius stuff um i haven't read any um and for for gareth this isn't as much of a mystifying oversight because his interests skewed to the literary world almost exclusively for a really long period um obviously had interests and dalliances outside of that but for me who like i i sucked up fantasy novels and science fiction novels this is a very befuddling um uh blind spot to have <laughs> and and i had mentioned that i really wanted to start here uh this is even before we did anything because i'd heard that these ones are, are wacky and eden was insistent that we not do it and now i get why <laughs> not not because these are bad these, these are like these are a hell of a lot of fun but yeah a being them against the elric stuff this is radically different um yeah one it, it may reading this i'm gonna go um a little bit afield but in a way that once i say it everyone's gonna be like i don't know i'm not even sure that counts as a field this stuff makes alan moore's love of michael moorcock makes so much more sense than oh, that yeah. first Elric novel like yeah. reading this and thinking about alan moore i go oh Oh, that's the tone. Same with Grant Morrison. Same with a lot of Neil Gaiman. Um, the way in which, because uh, because it's not even just the content. Um, it's also like the structural component that like this is the literary end. I found insanely compelling about this because he pivots through such a wide number of voices, image sets, fantastical substrates, like the book. Um, especially in an alien heat which has a lot more explicit time travel the other ones are less they ping pong less but st still quite a bit still quite a bit um but yeah. um there's more multiversal stuff but he has to bounce between so many different like how do people of this era construct their sort of the fantastical mysterium that then allows them to respond to stuff and what happens when you have these collisions like so many novels of this type do the kind of lazy version where they put everything into one room but you can tell the room itself has a tone they don't really let the individual characters have a fully fleshed out tone they become these like a uh, parodic gestural things so the robot acts in a stereotypical robot manner and like a bad version of a story meanwhile the dragon acts like a stereotypical dragon these feel like he made and it makes sense when you find out how many people he just drew from either um the fact that he put sam peckinpah in one of the books <laughs> as an evil dictator um uh, uh, but like you have little things of real people you have little things from other books that he's written um again the fact that the uh the eternal champion is someone who not only reincarnates amongst times and eras but also universes and can be multiple people alive at the same time because it's an overriding spirit in like the nietzschean ubermenschian 
sense rather than a yeah. specific personage. So you have Jarek Carnelian being a derivative of Jerry Cornelius, but like a derivative. He's not a copy. Um, and then he encounters characters that, um, thank God, there's a Moorcock wiki. Thank God. Um, because there are a <laughs> bunch of little things that I yep. never would have picked up on first read. Yep. Because to be fair, I don't think anyone does. Um, I think it's meant similar. To, and this is where uh, I'm going to say his name. The fact that uh, Gene Wolfe must have read these books, must have. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, 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 I know this in my bones. And the way in which it feels, because there's even, um, we talked about it there in the, the sense of the dying earth genre. This, this, this is dying more, earth, to be clear. Yeah. This feels more like the reinvention of the dying earth world that Gene so, Wolfe was playing in. Rather so, so, than directly the the Vancian thing, and it's just I don't know. This was such a literary feast that like, yeah. it's it's the so, same thrill I get when I read Alan Moore's stuff. Of like, so there's two kinds of writing experiences I have as a writer myself. There's people that are so good that I want to blow my brains out, because um, like I'm never going to do that. Like if I read too much Borges, I get depressed because he's <laughs> so fucking good that I like I I I can't think about doing it. same with like tony morrison i i have to be limited with my tony morrison because she is such a fucking brilliant writer that like i i'll get i'll, I'll, I'll like dissemble I'll, like I, I just feel like i can't do it at all meanwhile this gives me the same feeling that philip k dick or brian caitling or alan moore or th like that cast where i read it and i get fucking hungry like it was hard i during our little summer break i started writing a new novel and it draws in part from this vibe, not entirely. I'm a third of the way done. I've written 20,000 words. Like, I'm just like, it made me so fucking hungry. Um, yeah. So I, I want to touch on, on a few things. Um, you said, one, I want to read a quote from Gene Wolfe, um, 1988. Among SF writers, I'd include in his list of favorite authors, Algis, Algis Budris, Joanna Russ, Ursula Le Guin, Damon Knight, Kate Wilhelm, Michael Bishop, Brian Aldis, Nancy Cress, Michael Moorcock. He goes on at Theodore Sturgeon and Clark Ashton Smith and R.A. Lafferty because Wolf was a real one. Um, but Michael Moorcock, so I, I don't think it's a stretch at all to say that he read this. Um, now, that's one. Two, you made the Vance... Um, comparison which i think is super interesting to, like i said to be clear this is very much a dying of story right i mean it ticks all the marks if you go back to our episode on the dying elf and i think i also mentioned it there the end of time immensely powerful civilization which doesn't remember the past almost at all decadence things are declining and so on but also the extravagance, which we talked about in the first part of this um, episode, which makes Dying Earth metal. So that's where this book and Vance meet. The sheer number of characters, technology, magic, colors, events, the sheer wildness of them. Like, yeah. those. Lord Lord Mongrove, the manic depressive giant who's constantly like 
um, complaining and then looking outside the corner of his eye to see if people are like enjoying the show. For fuck's sake, one of the characters is called the Duke of Queens. After Queens, like Queens, New York, because they've completely forgotten what Queens ever was, right? And um, Lord Jagged, who, by the way, could be um, the Chaos Lord from Elric. There's like a lot of hints that he's one and the same, who, is also, who also orchestrates the entire love affair in the book and so on. Um, the Iron Orchid. All, all these characters are so... If I just copy-pasted them into Vance, they would fit 100%. They would be like uh, one of his uh, like extravagant wizards, and and Wolf as well. Like you might be tempted to say, not you, but some hypothetical listener, um, that the Book of the New Sun is more restrained, right? Like its setting is less wild, but that's only true on the textual level, right? The subtextual has, you know, the fucking giant who's a ship and Baldandles and Talos and um, the statues in the House Absolute and. Big the house River absolute women. itself, which may or may not yeah. be in time. Yeah. Hethel and his beasts, like it still has that kind of like wild extravagance and and sense of the of grandeur and, and infinite power and, and energy. But so I think many, that, um so many people yeah. that, that we know now, we we've been working diligently to wolf pill a bunch of people. As one does. We're we're not the only <laughs> people in the world who've done this. We're not the first people in history, and we're not gonna be the last. But seeing people pick up that torch and uh, trying yeah. to convey in part that as, as they get more wolf pilt, you naturally move to other books by, by wolf. You read uh, fifth head of Cerberus is like almost always the next one you read um, for good reason. Great fucking great fucking book. But at some point you pick up the Latho books, which are, which are great. You pick up the wizard Knight, and you pick up, you know, all the all these other little series. And then you get to drop the little bond mot on them when you're like, did you see how they're all connected? And they're like, what? And you go, read them again. Read them again, but think about Severian. Think about him. Think about these coins. Think about the Kakajins. And then all of a sudden you start, I'm a, I'm very much a wolf truther that they're all kind of, that Book of the New Sun and the Solar Cycle is like the spine of his world. Yeah. But but it's the spine in the same way that, again, that Moorcock does here, where like the end of time is where he kind of reveals a lot more directly the underlying substrate of a lot of his world. But right. in, in this like very shattered, um, I'm going to say like a comic book reference here. It's a very battle battle worldian kind of vibe. Yeah. Um, like it feels like secret wars where it's like, they all exist in a kind of multiverse and these spirits so, that I'm talking about emerge in different shapes in. So there's I, the I actually... implication that the multiverse might be Michael Moorcock's brain, which I, oh, <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I, I want to actually take it one step further and say that Moorcock does something similar here because one of his um, standalone novels, which you have to read, by the way, Langdon, if you haven't, it's called Behold the Man. And the, um, the, the premise there is that a psychologist student obsessed with Jung meets a guy at this like group therapy that has a time machine and goes back in time to speak to Jesus Christ. But then doesn't find him and then becomes Jesus Christ uh, fulfilling like the time loop. So the time machine that Jerick takes back to the 19th century is the same time machine in Behold the Man. Okay. Implying that 
behold a man is part of the eternal champion cycle or that in fact every single thing that Mokok has ever written is inside of the multiverse which might be his brain right but even more than that the end of all songs which is the third book of the dancers at the end of time there's some apocryphal texts but those three are like the core of it um, actually reveals a lot about the meta plot of the eternal champion period right well it ends spoilers for a book from the 70s um apparently lord jagged has been he's been doing duke leto the second to them right like he's been <laughs> doing genetic experiments where amelia and jerick's uh, genes would create they'd be a sort of like new adam and eve right and he wants to send them to the beginning of time to populate the earth and create humanity importantly jerick is one of the last humans at the end of time that was born instead of uh, created um so instead jagged um discovers that the universe is cyclical right and instead of there's already been one cycle they've already been in one cycle because of all the time traveling so instead of like sending them back he sends them forwards to start a new civilization now the other eternal champions are always talking about who the archetype is. I mean, the books, not the characters, right? Like Eric Corsa is supposedly the archetype, right? He wakes up, he uses the sword, he commits genocide, he loses his love because of it. He's scattered across the multiverse and has to find her. But what if Jerick and Amelia are the archetype? And that makes sense, right? Like Jerick is, is an eternal champion, right? He is the Nietzschean hero. He follows his desires, but he doesn't, importantly, he lashes out against the completely random and hedonistic uh, morality of his time. He doesn't say, we need an order. He says, we need, I need my order, right? I need my morality, not a morality. I need, um, you know, good with a, not a capital G. Um, and Amelia is his love, which he loses and then crosses time to uh, win again, which is exactly what happens in almost all of the other Eternal Champion books. So, like, this is 1976. This is not the end of the Eternal Champion books. Like, Michael Moorcock wrote most of the Eternal Champion after this. And, like, how many people do you think actually read these books? And if they read them, they liked them enough to consider them like a keystone for the rest of the series. I can guarantee you that it wasn't many. And it's such like a baller move and like a Michael Moorcock move to put so many of the answers in texts which are so apocryphal and so non, um, you know, central. You, you can read all of the core Eternal Champion books without reading Dancers at the End of Time and you would lose nothing right and, and and you can't do that for some of the other ones like you cannot read the eternal champion cycle without reading Hawkmoon, without reading elric you can't do it because it doesn't make any sense um they they, they prefigure like the the, the um, climax of the entire cycle but here well all of not all but some of the answers are and the themes are, are described in such a clear way this is like this is a side quest Right? This is like a note on a note on a note. And and it's such a, a cool move for someone who, here we go, I'm going to say the other name or the other concept, 
it's it's rhizomatic right oh yeah oh that's the, the stuff Ooh. yeah <laughs> the, key, the keystone is not in the center because there is no center the dancers at the end of time and that's why one of the reasons i chose it beyond the fact that i just i love it um it's the, the keystone that you find down one branch, which seems completely insignificant, and suddenly you find this incredibly important concept to the to the whole. It's not in the center. It's not at the bottom. It's not arboreal. It's it's dispersed. And you could look at it as like, well, that's tedious, right? Like I have to go, um, you know, shuffling through all these books and sifting through them to find all these meanings. Like, no, you don't. That's the point. You only do it. If you really like the series and you and you love it, or someone else told you to go and do it, I did it randomly. I will. I like. I read um, Elric, and then I l- found this book at a store, and I was like, "What? What the fuck is this? This is Morgoth. Like, I gotta read this." And I completely fell in love, but I didn't have to. And and that's the beauty of it. Think about how much. Last thing I'm gonna say in this rant, like, think about how much confidence Michael Morgoth had to have had to do something like this, like to put some of the best raison, raison d'etre of his entire series in, in a side novel. It's so, I, I just appreciate it so, so much. I, I'm reminded a lot of, again, the, uh, uh, it's this energy that I got from, from Philip K. Dick when I was first reading him. So I'd heard a lot about him. I'd read some short stories as like a, a sci-fi obsessed kid, but it wasn't really until I went to college that I that I really got into Philip K. Dick. Um, started when my roommate lent, not roommate, a friend of mine lent me a copy of Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said. Um, mm-hmm. Crazy good book. Um, and then I just went to the school library and they happened to have like a ton, like they had, they had blood money. They had the three stigmata of Palmer Elrich. They had Ubik. They had, uh, uh, the divine invasion. They had like the rack that they had was, was super deep. Um, and it was scattered amongst a pretty, uh, wide range of texts. And I managed to dance around most of the key ones for a while. Like I didn't get to, uh, do android dream of electric sheep until my fifth or sixth philip k dick novel um i'm forgetting some of the other like big key ones but like i was drawn almost immediately to like the divine invasion i think was like the third one i read um (laughs) and it was that same sense of like the more you get a feeling of how this guy's mind works the more uh so this also speaks to an urge of mine that I've had as like a music liker and like a film liker and all that kind of stuff. Like this is precede using that diminutive term because this precedes me becoming an art critic. I, I became, I chose to study art and art history and then became an art critic and became an artist because of this fervent desire that came from just loving this stuff. But it was that sense of, the more you look into the minor works of someone knowing their major works, the more you can, one, appreciate why the major works are the major ones, but two, you begin to see how the how the artist thinks and moves. Like any given work becomes more, it, they become more and less important because you no longer see them as uh, the way that like a fetishist might, where it's like, Moorcock is important because of Elric. You start going, no, he's important because of Moorcock. Like when he's writing, he's doing a Moorcockian thing every time. 
and you get this beautiful revelation of how deep and how rich and how varied being Morcockian is. That there's a reason why that's entered the lexicon and sort of the world of literary um, fantasy and literary science fiction, meaning a kind of very robust and complete project. The same way that like referring to something as being Wolfian or Le Guinian um, is referring to like an entire psyche that generates a work. It's not referring to a specific work itself. This is something that um, obvious major credit to a dispute that we'd had before in the dispute between Frank Herbert and Gene Wolfe. Gene Wolfe bodies Frank Herbert as a writer. I may like Dune more than I like uh, the solar cycle, but one, Wolfe is so much more than the solar cycle, and as much as Frank Herbert wrote a lot more, you don't need, <laughs> you don't need to read anything else. By Frank Herbert. You don't. Like, just not at all. Meanwhile, Wolf, it is this whole world. Like, you're diving into, like, there's a reason why people emulate him versus they emulate Dune, if that makes sense. Like, they're not yeah. emulating Frank Herbert's entire psychic register when they're thinking as a writer. They're thinking about the Dune, the, I normally even just the first four Dune books. They even cut out the last two. Um, maybe that would have been different if he'd finished the arc that they were um, intended to be part of. But uh, but it's that same kind of feeling that I got when I was first getting into Philip K. Dick. Of uh, And I can liken this as well to the when I got into Stanley Kubrick. Like, people who love Kubrick love Kubrick. They don't love any specific Kubrick film. You may get into him because of 2001 A Space Odyssey. That was one for me. Shocker, I know. Um, but <laughs> it may be like Dr. Strange Love, it may be Full Metal Jacket. But at a certain point, if you love Kubrick, you learn to love how his mind works. And that's what makes it so thrilling that they're now in that mindset. There are no minor works anymore. Because everything reflects this greater gestalt. Um, and it's... Yeah, it, it's been... Um, every now and again, you go back and you read one of the greats and you go... Uh, you know, you, you, maybe you respect them, um, but your personal relationship maybe takes on a very different shape. Uh, this sort of sojourn into Moorcock has been, uh, one, it's been deeply illuminating to me why that deep personal relationship has been there. It's also even been just firing up my, my interests again. There's a reason why I brought up tabletop stuff. Uh, earlier on in the episode because this stuff mm -hmm. feeds that energy of mine i think like a lot of people actually no i'm going to speak directly to eden for this one and hopefully people can follow along <laughs> i got into D, &D really young because i was i was a nerd kid i love fantasy love science fiction you get into D, &D. now it was america in the 90s so everyone was scared that if you get into D, &D you're going to worship satan and kill yourself um sincerely they were sincerely scared of that it's weird it was a weird time um, but, you know, I, I gradually am able to get in, assemble books in secret, and then talk to my parents about it and have a million different, get into it, all that kind of stuff. And I played for years and years and years and years. And my, my friends and I would play almost every single week, sometimes multiple times a week for like a decade. It was like, we were, we were in it. Um, we played a lot, <clears throat> but at a certain point you play enough and the sense of the thrill of the campaign is gone the critical voice 
comes in. There's something really sad, I find, about people who within a certain window start going, I really hate D&D. I really wish people would look past it. It's so combat heavy. The rules are too cumbersome. Because this implies that disenchantment has happened. That It's not that they're wrong, to be clear, but the hunger and excitement that you see from, as much as I don't like real plays and I don't like D&D podcasts or anything like that, I, I have very specific feelings about that you do see a hunger from their audience that comes from the fact that they're enchanted like that's the thing referencing back to the beginning of the episode that's the thing that we all remember that makes us go to this stuff is that sense of like wild wonder and you can see within people who've played a a bunch of tabletop stuff when that breaks and they begin desperately searching out for anything that will re-enchant them but There's a reason why no secondary system has ever, 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 ever come close to dethroning D&D. And that's because people aren't going to them out out of being enchanted with that. They're going out on a quest for any enchantment. And so they'll assemble, you know, 20 different micro games that that they like and that are good that have a lot of positive attributes to them but that level of i am enchanted with this doesn't really happen but there's a thing that like reading this stuff and that happened to me as well i'm not saying this to castigate people this is something that also happened very personally to me reading this has again made me go back to notebooks and start jotting down ideas for campaigns and stuff like like I'm a 15 year old again like I'm just coming up with like one of those so, things I don't care if the rules have room for what I want to do I will make room because I don't know I just I miss this feeling <laughs> so for me as someone who tells people to play things that are not D&D I think the failure in both camps both quote unquote my camp and the camp of people who play D&D is that the point is to move past both those things into that passion that you described. Yeah. D&D is just the most accessible path towards that passion and that's not a bad thing it's just where most people will end up but the people who make D&D don't give a shit about that passion anymore. Oh, Lord, they don't care. Do they don't they? care about it, and they're gonna set up every single obstacle that they can to you f- feeding that passion. And and I want to give a counter example, like a positive example. What is the best, most quintessential manifestation of this passion that we've gotten recently? Baldur's Gate Three. Wizards of the Coast could not make Baldur's Gate Three. No. Okay, they don't understand D and D well enough to make that game. It could only have been made by someone else, and that's also true for Divinity, like Larian's previous games. They were made by people who understand why people play role playing games, and there are other systems and settings who are written by people who understand, who understand that passion. That's why I don't like OSR, like old school role playing, because yeah. it feels ironic to me. It feels detached. It feels like Let's go. It's it's like, sorry, I'm like pissing off a lot of people, but it feels like old school death metal, that type of old school death metal that you talked about. What Noyan from Heavy Blog he calls boomer death metal. Oh, look at how grimy my tone sounds. Look at how disgusting my guttles are. Who cares, dude? Do you like the music that you're playing? Because it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like you're just playing whatever Demi Leech sounded like 30 fucking years ago. So it's the same thing here. 
like finally and I'm, this is I'm gonna wrap it up and you're gonna take us to music because I think that's the, the bottom line and it will it will it will tie back to Mocock. Finally, we got the power metal of video games, D and D video games. Someone saying, you know what? D and D is about ridiculous, over the top storylines. It's about romancing NPCs that you shouldn't romance. It's about stacking 50 boxes so you can get over a castle wall. It's about telling an earnest, deep felt, serious, dramatic story with your friends, but also having fun and ordering too much takeout and eating snacks and drinking shit soda and, and not going to sleep and, and, and falling in love with this enchanted world that makes zero sense, but works anyway, not because it has like a fucking meticulous, dramatic, dramatis personae or magic system, <clears throat> Sanderson, <clears throat> And, and, and like it's it's a it's a perfectly mechanical machine. No, it's a nightmare. It's a disaster. D&D was always a disaster until fucking Wizards of the Coast became Hasbro and 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 uh, decided to codify it, right? And that goes back to Moorcock. And that goes back to why Elric is so good and why Dancers at the End of Time is so good and all of his stuff because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't compile. If you try to build like a chart of what to read and you'll see in my solo episode that I won't give you that, I won't give you that. It doesn't compile. It doesn't coalesce into something that makes sense. It's not arboreal. It's not a tree. It's a piece of grass. It goes everywhere all at once, and it goes nowhere. It goes into itself and outside of itself in all sorts of weird and interesting ways. And by the way, while I'm you know waxing poetic here, like this is what we try to do with Death Sentence, right? Like look back at the stuff that we cover. It makes absolutely no fucking sense. Right? I mean, there are themes for sure, but we're all over the place. And, and that's, we try to do that. We try to do it. That's why I did like the Tolkien solo episode. Hey, here's some, you know, proper, like down the line Christian allegory for you inside your fantasy, which is something that we haven't done before and I wanted to do it. Or, or, or um, Gareth's interview with um, Eleanor about the once in the future sex, like here's a history book. That, that's not something that we've, we've done before. Um, and, and, and some stuff that, of course, that Langdon and I have done. And, and we, we try to, to do exactly that, like not go in one direction, but explore all of the directions that are um, possible to us. The, the thought, the thought behind it, the thought behind it is, I've mentioned this a million times, um, this shows up in my writing as, as well. I'm more interested in showing people how to think, not what to think. I don't care if yep. you think what I think. I want to know that the process that's generated those thoughts is is good, is robust. And then I want to be surprised by it. I want to be thrown a thought that I never would have had on my own. I don't need someone to validate my thoughts. I'm not a child. I don't have that kind of self-esteem issue. I want to see the kinds of things that make me thrilled. This is the thing where, like, I'm a big D&D defender, but not because... Notably, I'm not saying I'm a Wizards of the Coast defender. You can't really be. That would be insane. And I'm not even <laughs> saying that I necessarily like their products. It's, again, the beauty of the beauty of role-playing is this is a test of the imaginations and skills of the people at the table. If there's a problem with the book, can you get past it? Because your imagination and verve, and even just experience with role-playing, means that you go, I have the story in my head, and I know at the end of the day, no matter what book we're using, we roll dice, 
esoterically interpret a number and say what the fuck happened. Can I do that? And once you get to that point, the system doesn't matter anymore. That's sort of where the passion is. It's like the people make this thing work. There's no system that makes you good at role-playing, and there's no system that makes you bad at it. You become good or bad. This is also the same in art and heavy metal, that, like, I I love the whole wave of old-school death metal, but because I love those records, I would probably be way more annoyed if I talked to more of the fans, if I went to more of the shows or anything like that. I'm frankly not interested in that. I sit in my comfy-ass chair, I throw on a grimy, nasty death metal record, and I feel like I'm 14 again. I had that feeling in me the first time I heard Morbid Angel, where I heard where the slime lived. I just, I go nuts. Um, like there's, I, I ravenously love death metal. I do not hide this. Um, but it's that same thing. Like we mentioned, it's like, this is also at root the thing that speaks to me about both Deleuze's um, mentions of intensity, but that he borrowed from 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 Nietzsche. The fire of the willful life. Like I can diverge from a lot. Nietzsche said a lot of dipshit stuff because he's he just talked. He just shot from the hip, and sometimes he should not have. Um, but but it's that <laughs> same thing of like the joy de vivre. Like this is also what drives literary work. This is what this is when we've talked about the difference between great art that deals with morality and deals with the ethical question and deals with the, the robustness of the psyche. We even see this within leftist theory and political praxis of, you know, how do you handle someone in your community has done something harmful? How do you recuperate from that? How do you build from it? Uh, this is what differentiates the good versions of those from the bad, negative, sort of overly destructive versions is like, where is the heart? It's like that. that's an overriding... That's an overriding thing. This 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 emerges in a million different manners, but it's it is the center of being. Now, take us to music, Clinton. On Twitter, I mentioned uh, <laughs> having encountering a record that uh, blew my ass so far sideways that I went insane, and I lamented the fact that it had come out uh, like. We, we hadn't set a specific time to return from our little summer break, which, by the way, I had a terrible summer. I think every single person I've spoken to did. This, this has been a bad year. Um, uh, but I, I mentioned one specific record and that if I had the opportunity, I would be a huge piece of shit and pick the most obnoxious song on this entire album to put on. And guess what? The Lord has saw fit to give me this power. I'm talking about Sprain, a yeah. noise rock group that does progressive noise rock and on their most recent record decided that they're now also a contemporary classical compositional group. Um, it's fucking, it's so fucking good. Um, the album is just riven with these like really crunchy, really fucked up and gnarly, like mathy noise rock songs and then out of nowhere these like beautiful and like intensely moving orchestral pieces and i said that my bitch ass was going to put on the 25 minute song margin for error because that's the most death sentence thing we could pick that's the most <laughs> fuck you i'm gonna show you a piece of music that's gonna blow your ass sideways and i knew in my heart of hearts that if i did it it would have to be the closing piece so that if you ever kind of got done yeah you could you just turn it off but like I urge you not to. This record is fucking incredible. It's 
eight tracks over an hour and a half. Um, the Lamb as Effigy. Oh God, yeah, it's it's so. The, the secondary title is or 350 XOXOXOs for a spark union with my darling divine. It's just like, I can't speak enough how much this merges everything that I love and does it without pretension. They're just joyfully making music. It reminds me of the same vibe of Cardiacs, but without the, um, Cardiacs can be a bit goofier. This is much more like austere, but again, it doesn't feel pretentious. It feels like it's just blossoming with love. I just, uh, I'm so happy yeah. with this album. This is Margin for Error by Spring. Thank you as always for listening and please enjoy. We will see you next time. Bye-bye.